Hello everyone and welcome back to our Streaming Science podcast series. Streaming Science is a student-driven science literacy program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Through our multimedia platform, we connect you with scientists and scientific concepts that can enrich your everyday life. So it's another beautiful day on East Campus and I'm your host, Riley Kalb. I am an agricultural and environmental sciences communication major here at UNL. I love being an AESC major because I get to learn all about new science concepts and the things happening in the College of Ag Sciences and Natural Resources. So in this podcast series, we're all hitting the topic of big data. Sounds scary, right? Um, So that's kind of why we're deciding to talk about it. What is big data? How does it affect you? And what new science is around the corner? So those are kind of some of the things we'll explore in this podcast series. So for this podcast, I chatted with Dr. James Schnabel. He's a professor who's working with various crops in Nebraska to develop technology to better create plants for diverse climates. We'll be talking with James to learn more about how his research contributes to our big data series. So let's just jump right in. Welcome, James. I'm happy to talk with you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Perfect. Um, so I guess we'll just dive right in. So um, could you just tell me kind of your background? How did you get to UNL? Uh, sure thing. So I grew up in uh, Ames, Iowa, which is another Midwestern college town, even closer to where we are now than uh, where you came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to school both in New York and California to study corn, uh, and then finally managed to come back to the Midwest uh, when I got hired. Uh, here in Nebraska. Perfect. So, uh, home home is essentially Iowa State, huh? Yeah. Cyclones. But yeah, we, I moved here after we uh, changed conferences, so I don't get to see them. <laughs> hey, that's 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 all the better because yeah, then we I can root for each yeah. other. There's not as much of a, exactly. a rivalry. It it's good conflicts of interest. Yeah, absolutely. So, tell me about your research with corn. Um, a little bit. That's really vague, but <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so, uh, as a lot of folks know, the yield of corn is going up every single year. Uh, on average, every single year we'll get uh, two more bushels out of every acre uh, of farmland across the American Midwest. The problem is it takes more and more uh, time and energy and money uh, to get those higher yielding corn uh, hybrids every year. Uh, so what I do is work with both uh, genomics, so studying the genes of corn, and phenomics, how we measure corn plants in the field to find more efficient ways of developing those better hybrids every year. Okay, so roughly what would what percent would you say is studied in the lab versus out in the out in the fields, uh, basically? Oh, that's actually a very good question. So my goal is to spend as little time in a, a wet lab, a molecular biology lab, as possible. So a lot of time is spent, uh, both myself and my students, just working on computers, and a lot of time either in the field or or in greenhouses here on campus. But we uh, try and limit our time uh, in what you think of as a Research lab. Yeah, okay. So you're essentially doing a lot of stuff on computers, yeah. but taking as much data as you can from out where you're at, essentially. Absolutely. Okay, so how did you get involved in this area of research? Uh, it, it came about very uh, circuitously. Uh, so I started out uh, working on light signaling, uh, which is a, a very a much less applied topic. Uh, went from that to working on genomics, because I think genomics had this same big data revolution probably five or ten years before phenotyping did. Uh, there were advances in, in genome sequencing technology that made it really cheap to sequence your genome or mine. The first human genome cost a billion dollars, and that was less than 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had this expertise in working with really, really large data sets. When I came to the University of Nebraska, uh, we had just built some very large uh, phenotypic collection facilities. There's an automated greenhouse uh, on Innovation Campus. Uh, there are big uh, automated fields uh, out near Nebraska where we grow plants. 
in agricultural settings and measured them every day using all sorts of different types of sensors. Mm -hmm. There were not a lot of biologists who knew what to do with those uh, big piles of data. Uh, so about six months after I was hired, somebody called me into their office and said, hey, can you take on this uh, second uh, research area? I did, and I really enjoyed it. Okay, so basically you're taking all this data, essentially, yes. that's part of corn plants, analyzing it and being able to store it. What is right. what is that process like? That sounds like a lot, uh, a lot of stuff to deal with. Oh, absolutely. And I, I would say one of our big challenges now is it's so cheap to generate data, we have more of it than we can realistically store. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is, uh, like anything else, if once you throw something away, you're guaranteed that's the thing you're going to need next week. Uh, so how to triage data and... Uh, what to do with it in the long term. So we still have the important stuff if we need it uh, as a real challenge. So do you have people that help you store that or then? Do you, I mean, you have so much that you can't store it on right. computers, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so we're very fortunate to work both with uh, HCC, which is the Holland Computing Center here at mm -hmm. uh, UNL, and also with a group called Cyverse down at University of Arizona. Uh, and they both uh, have a lot of research into how to store big data sets. And also they've invested a lot in the infrastructure of just uh, racks and racks of servers with lots and lots of hard drives to store the, the most important data. Uh, it's a real shift in culture. Uh, when I was a grad student, the way we store data is we just had an external hard drive plugged into our laptop. And then when the grad student left, that hard drive went on a shelf somewhere. And if you needed data in six years, you were trying to search through someone else's uh, file folders. And essentially, it got lost, but you didn't realize at any point you were throwing it away. It just eventually couldn't be found anymore. Right. And it sounds like nowadays you can just, you can accumulate so much data yeah. at a faster pace and you have more knowledge than we have ever had before. Right. So it's just finding a way to keep uh, that somewhere. Absolutely. It's probably very difficult. And, uh, this is something Jennifer Clark talks about a lot is the importance of metadata. So data about data. If you have uh, a giant directory with 85 files named, you know, data sets one through 85, it's going to be very hard to find anything. Mm -hmm. If you put in extra time and effort describing what each data set is, it's much more likely to get reused. Uh, but that's not particularly fun work, and it probably doesn't benefit you because you know your data, benefit other people. So how do we incentivize that? Yeah, right. So what do you see are the benefits of, of, of your research? What are consumers going to be able to, or farmers, or who, who does this affect, and how? what are the benefits here? Um, ultimately, I hope the, the benefit is, is all of humanity. Uh, in the short term, probably the first people who benefit uh, are both uh, farmers and seed companies, because if we can continue to develop better crops, but it costs less money to do that. First of all, that means we can probably get uh, better crops. Also, hopefully it means we can do it uh, more cheaply, so uh, seed doesn't cost as much. It also means we can apply the same technology that right now is only used for major crops like corn and soybeans to more minor crops that really have not seen a lot of breeding investment uh, in decades. Uh, for example, I work with a guy um, out in western Nebraska who is the only breeder for Prozo millet. Uh, which is a crop we grow a fair bit of in Nebraska. It can grow in really dry, arid environments, uses water incredibly efficiently. Uh, but there have only been, I think, one or two varieties released in the last 20 years for that crop uh, because it, it, uh, the market is not big enough to justify the investment uh, using non-high uh, throughput approaches. Now, hopefully, we can do the same things in crows millet that we can do in, in corn. So what is millet essentially used for then? Because yeah. corn has a lot of uses, yeah. so it just yeah. kind of, to me, it would make more sense to... To, yeah. to use corn because it has a lot of oh, uses. Yeah, so yeah. what is millet? What is millet's purpose? Well, so I would say that the big advantage of millet is we can grow places we can't grow corn. So in western Nebraska, you have to irrigate for corn. Mm -hmm. In millet, you can grow it on land where you don't have irrigation water. So it's something. Uh, if you could grow corn, I'd still say definitely grow the corn. Uh, millet gets used for a lot of the same things, though. You can feed it to animals. Um, it's uh, actually used a lot in bird seed. 
Uh, it's also uh, another one of these gluten-free grains, and for whatever reason, people like millet more than uh, corn for that. I think because you can call it an ancient grain, and people, uh, you know, like that more. Corn has a different reputation. So, it, so you could make bread out of it and whatnot. Uh, and is it a like gluten-free option yeah, sort so of thing? There's like gluten-free beers and things that get made. Oh, out of okay. It so not yeah. not breads essentially, yeah, yeah. but okay, beer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's not but, sticky enough to make bread. I think that's what makes, okay. that's the best. What gluten does is it right. helps the bread hold together. Right, that makes sense. I didn't know if you could make even crackers out of it. Probably you can think. make crackers out of it. In China, okay. they make you know cakes and porridges and things. Interesting. Very cool. So China then uses millet. Yes. Quite a bit. They use it probably a lot more than we do. Okay, so what? So are you looking to bring um, from like the knowledge that you gain about millet and these other types of crops? Are you looking to try to take those to different areas in the United States? Even is there basically is there any chance that you could grow millet or any of those crops in Arizona? You know where nothing uh, grows, yeah. or is that something that you look forward to? Uh, yes, I mean certainly. So I, uh, before talking about Arizona, I mean there are lots of parts of Colorado. Uh, where the water rights have been bought up by cities, because uh, you know cities also are, are struggling with water, and so you have these whole areas where agriculture is essentially shutting down. So that I mean, I would really love to see uh, crops like millet grown in areas uh, like that. Uh, I think for it, that particular crop is it doesn't do well with extreme heat, so it might not do so well in areas. Okay, gotcha. There are other crops. Um, uh, panacetum is one of them that would potentially grow there, and it's that same issue of. It's an important crop. People have grown it for hundreds of thousands of years, or not hundreds of thousands, thousands of years. Uh, but it hasn't been a big enough market to justify the investment in breeding. And I think now with uh, big data approaches, both for genomic selection and, and the, the gene side of things mm -hmm. and the phenomics, we can probably start to uh, be breeding crops that can do well in places, even like New Mexico and Arizona. Okay. So what are you what are you looking to what are you looking to find in your research right now? Um, or what are you looking to do? What yeah. is the goal? So uh, in the, on the phenomic side of my research, my goal is essentially to figure out ways using sensors and drones and cameras uh, to replicate what is currently done by having a grad student walk through the field with a ruler and a notebook uh, evaluating plants uh, day after day throughout the growing season. Uh, the number of grad students who want to do that is a limited uh, resource. We can't really expand that supply. Uh, we can buy more drones or more cameras or more robots. Um, and uh, on large scale, it becomes a lot cheaper uh, a grad student. So you can do, uh, you can evaluate many more uh, types of corn or types of millet at the same time. Okay, very cool. So um, I guess moving on, we're, our topic area for this class is big data. Yep. So how would you essentially choose to define it? We're asking every scientist this question <laughs> because we're just purely curious what, yeah. what the variance will be. And uh, yeah, so what do you think? Um, so I, I'm going to give you two definitions, and, and you can pick whichever one you like more. <laughs> uh, so the first one, the one that is, I think, my personal definition, uh, is when the our normal approaches to developing and testing hypotheses break down. Uh, so I was trained as a geneticist, and for that, you know, you have a hypothesis, you collect a data set, you run one statistical test, you get a p-value, either it's significant or not, and you move on. Um, with big data, you're collecting lots of different types of data at once. There are many relationships with, between the data. Uh, so you need uh, different approaches to both have computers generate and test their own hypotheses uh, that then you can say, okay, well, that makes sense. Maybe I should run a new experiment to validate that. Uh, so that's my own personal definition. Uh, talking to a lot of my colleagues who work with bigger big data than I do, uh, I think it's for them it's when the normal approaches to computation break down. Uh, so the data sets are so large you can't run them on one computer. You have to think about how you split it 
across a supercomputer or distributed network or something like that. So those are different topic areas you would say that are affected more in that way? Well, I would say it's just it's 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 two scale. So for big data is whenever the way you normally handle data breaks down. Mm-hmm. For me, that's uh, when our statistical methods break down. For some folks in statistics and computer science, it's when the actual approaches to analyzing data on computers break down. Hmm. So Interesting. Yeah. So how did you get involved then with Jennifer Clark in the Quantitative Life Science yeah. Initiative? So I was actually uh, hired as one of three faculty positions that uh, were created when the Quantitative Life Sciences Initiative was founded. So they wanted people who worked on biological data at different scales using quantitative methods. And so I was hired uh, as a person who could do uh, genomics stuff. Mm-hmm. So was that so you were hired as part, kind of as yeah. a part of the initiative, or because yeah, it was yeah, starting? Yeah, when it was founded. Okay, very cool. So that was roughly 2014. 2014. Okay, wow. So you've been yeah. here for a few years now. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess moving on, we kind of want to relate to some of our, our listeners and just um, kind of one of the one of my favorite questions always to ask people, whether I'm doing a video or a podcast or whatever, is um, what were you like as a kid, and what yeah. you know, when did you think you wanted to be a scientist? Uh, I was probably a very nerdy kid. I, I always enjoyed uh, science and math. Um, my parents tell a story of I was about three years old running around saying, look, look, there are cotyledons. It's <laughs> a very, you know, yeah. Uh, wait, wait, tell, okay. tell for the listeners. <laughs> uh, so these are the, the, the very first leaves that plants put out. They're actually developed in the seed. Right, um, okay. They're actually technically not leaves, but that's a whole. That's yeah, a whole different, yeah. Let's yeah. not go into that. Um, so I uh, have always been very interested in, in science and statistics and engineering. Uh, I went to college wanting to do anything other than biology because uh, my father is also a biologist. I wanted to avoid going very much into the sort of the family business. Mm -hmm. Uh, That lasted about a semester and I was skipping uh, economics courses to spend more time in a biology lab and I was hooked. Yeah, it is. What is it? That's funny. Um, so what advice would you give to kids that are interested in science? So you talk about your cotyledon yeah, story. Yeah. What? How does that relate to others? Um, I would say that the, the biggest thing is uh, don't let yourself get uh, talked into being afraid of math. Um, it's something we still run into. A lot of people come into biology uh, because they like science and they, they think that they don't like math. Um, and so that... We use a lot of math even in biology and big data. I think you know, math and stats are becoming a lot more important. Mm-hmm. The thing is, it's a lot more fun when you are working with a computer and you're allowed to use Google to look up how to do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way math is taught at the middle school or high school, and probably even undergraduate level, I think is not a good reflection of what math is like uh, when you're using it in science. So, so don't let yourself get talked into thinking you don't like math. You probably don't. Right. So like, yeah, like people, you know, kids have to grow up taking tests and yeah. math and yeah. that's probably just, that's not realistic of what it's like. If you oh. don't know, you just look it up and Absolutely. figure it out from there. <laughs> totally valid, good advice. So, um, what are you looking forward to in the future of your research? What are you, what are you hoping that you see in five, 10 years? Um, develop. I'm really hoping to see that with the, right now the techniques we're developing, uh, I mentioned I'm trying to sort of replicate what I can get with a grad student in the field. I'm hoping to get to the point where we really don't have to send grad students uh, into the field every day to score plants. Uh, and I'm really excited to start to imagine that when we start releasing, say, new uh, corn or new millet varieties that are developed using these methods uh, instead of uh, conventional breeding and scoring. Okay, that's very cool. 
So it was really great talking with Dr. Schnabel to learn more about the plant side of our big data series. It will be really exciting to see how his work will innovate the agricultural industry. It's also great for us as listeners to learn more about these scientific concepts and how they impact the world around us. So thanks for tuning in to this episode of Streaming Science and check out the other ones in our big data series. Have a wonderful day and we will see you next time.